Well, good evening. It's good being with you all again uh, tonight, and uh, very thankful for the opportunity to bring uh, God's Word to you. And uh, if you would, please open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 3. Uh, we are uh, in the middle of a series at Redeemer on wisdom, and uh, this is just one of the uh, particular messages that uh, we did about three weeks ago. And uh, in that series, uh, I've defined wisdom as the skill of living obediently, the skill of living obediently. And so I'm hoping tonight that we are going to grow in our obedience as children of God. Now, the uh, thing we're supposed to learn tonight is that because God delights in His children, we should receive His discipline as love. That because God delights in His children, we should receive His discipline as love. And so, if you would follow along with me, Proverbs chapter 3, I'll be reading just two verses, verses 11 and 12. Hear now the word of our great God. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of His reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask you to do a work in our hearts that you would show us your son Jesus Christ. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would lead us into all truth, that we may be shaped more and more to look like Jesus and represent you well in all of our relationships in this world. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when we hear the word discipline, we usually have negative feelings uh, that come up in our minds. Maybe you looked at the sermon title and you're like, oh goody, discipline, wait for the verbal beatdown. Well, that's not exactly what's happening tonight, but the Lord knows that that's how we normally view the word discipline, and that's why He instructs us right where we are. And he says that we should not despise it. What we see here in this proverb is that God gives us His love in 3D. What I mean is there's actually 3D words uh, that He wants us to see in this text. Uh, the first one is despise, the second one is discipline, and the third is delight. Basically, the discipline of wisdom is training us how to love what God loves and to hate what God hates, to despise what God despises, and to delight in what God delights in. And some might be tempted to say, if we just learn that, we can all just go home. But we're not here just to learn about God. We are not here just to download information into our brains. We are here to bask in the grace of God. We are not just brains. We are souls that want to bring praise to our Savior. So we want to see Him displayed on the pages of Scripture that we might honor and enjoy Him and marinate in His grace as His children. And so we are here to worship our great God. And so I'm hoping that that nourishment uh, is in your souls tonight and that your hearts uh, bring that praise to Him as a result of what we see here. As you know, the purpose of our existence is that we would become like Christ. And so let me ask you the first question. The first question is, what do you despise? Look again at verse 11. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of His reproof. Now, in the book of Proverbs, uh, we know that Solomon is giving instruction to his children, to his son. 
But since this is also the Word of God, then we as His children can receive it as instruction from our own heavenly Father. Now, consider how tender the Lord is with His children, beginning saying just, my son. He's just that endearing way of addressing us. And uh, for us to gain the most benefit from this fatherly context, we must first be assured that we are children of God. Now, just because God created us does not make Him automatically our spiritual father. The fall happened, and Jesus said as sinners that we are naturally born as children of the devil. And so, the only way for God to be our heavenly Father is by adoption. Now, the only way for God to adopt us, as we saw in the Old Testament, He redeems us. And so, uh, He calls Israel His redeemed people. He calls Israel His son because He formed a covenant relationship with His people. There are only a handful of references to God as Father in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, it's the primary way that we speak about God. We learn in Ephesians chapter 1, for example, verses 4 to 6, in love He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. God's adopting us was an act of His free grace, whereby He displayed His glorious character as our heavenly Father. Now, in the rest of Ephesians 1, as you may know, we learn that God uh, saved us by uniting us to Christ, and it refers to us being in Christ about ten times in that one chapter. And this is critical if we're going to understand what it means to relate to God as Father. You see, by faith, the Father unites us to Christ and gives us all the rewards that Jesus deserves for His perfect life. He gives us all of the benefits of His sin-atoning death on the cross and the glory of His death-conquering resurrection. When we are adopted, we are loved in the same way that the Father loves Christ. Now, when we recognize that we are guaranteed an eternal inheritance as the children of God. Now, if you want to be certain that you are a child of God, then turn away from your sins. Turn to Christ as your only Savior and find rest for your souls in His promises. One of them is from John chapter 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. And so as children of God, we are first instructed not to despise the Lord's discipline or to be weary of His reproof. Now, you see, these are the two natural ways that we respond to discipline. One is active by directing our anger at the Lord, or at least at His tool of discipline, or, and the other is passive by despairing and directing our anger inwardly. He says, don't despise and don't despair. Now, why do we naturally despise discipline? Well, Hebrews 12 gives us the simple answer, because it hurts. All the kids in here are saying, amen, pastor, yeah, it hurts. 
All of us have experienced that discipline. Hebrews 12, 11 says, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. We want to avoid pain if we can, but the Lord knows that. He designed us that way, and so He wants us to associate disobedience with pain to discourage us from continuing in it. But one of the reasons that we have trouble seeing discipline as love is because we have primarily experienced punitive discipline from our parents rather than corrective discipline. Anytime your children's um, you know, behavior annoys you or in some way disrupts your particular agenda, sometimes you may want to just get back at them. That's punitive or vengeful kind of discipline. It's not corrective discipline. It tends to be authoritarian, inconsistent, and extreme. Now, if this describes your normal type of discipline, ask yourself if your parents disciplined you in the same way. Well, did you despise it when they disciplined you that way? Now, don't give yourself the excuse to say, well, I turned out okay. You know, couldn't have been that bad. That's all too easy of an excuse for us. We don't need to pass on that unjust suffering to our children. Ephesians 6, 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Now, this obviously goes for mothers too, but it's up to the fathers to make sure the overall discipline of the household reflects the love of our heavenly Father. But even if a parent disciplines in love, or even if we experience the Lord's perfect discipline, we may still despise it. Why is that? Well, because our sinful hearts desire to be God of our own lives. We despise being told what to do and when to do it. We want to define our own reality, our own destiny, our own values in every area. And today, people even want to define their own gender. But the discipline of wisdom means turning away from the lie of self-determination to see reality as God designed it. This is why studying Proverbs is so needed today. Now, the other reaction we have to discipline is to despair, to passively direct our anger inwardly at ourselves. I'm such an idiot. I can't do anything right. I'm such a loser. Well, sadly, some parents give their children a whole new vocabulary of insults. You always get it wrong. You never get it right. You always forget. You'll never amount to anything. Fathers, mothers, God has given you the responsibility to shepherd and to guide and to shape your children's hearts. Fathers, you in particular are given the responsibility to help your child to know his or her identity and value. That shaping influence God has given you is one of the greatest responsibilities you can have. You have a defining type of influence. And if you use insults and disrespect in your discipline, the Lord is calling you to repent of those things. Now, sadly, a parent may not even need to say anything, and we are very capable of bringing that self-loathing to ourselves. You see, the devil either wants us to completely ignore our sin, right? I didn't do anything. 
or He wants us to be so obsessed by it that we just carry that weight around all the time. The problem is we can also use this self-despising in manipulative ways. Maybe you have seen people, or maybe you've done it yourself, uh, talk to your friends and you say, oh man, I'm such a horrible person, knowing that they're going to say, no, you're not, you're wonderful, you're smart, etc., etc. Self-loathing for the purpose of emotionally manipulating others is grand proof of our total depravity. You will never get what you need from others. What you need can only come to you from the Lord Himself. He alone gives us a right view of our sin and of ourselves. You see, guilt is like spiritual pain. God uses pain to alert us that something's wrong with our bodies. And He uses guilt to alert us that something is wrong with our souls. He wants us to despise our sin to confess it to Him, to turn away from it, and to come to Him to be healed. But instead of finding the root sin of our behavior, most sinners resort to the drug we call excuses to numb the pain of our guilt. We can thank our father Adam for those. It was the woman that you gave to be with me. It's all her fault. Now, some ungodly psychologists call sin a Christian neurosis or obsession. If God is causing this kind of uh, sense of guilt, then according to them, get rid of God, not your sin. The answer is to let go of the bondage of biblical guilt and live in the freedom of that sin. They say the freedom of your own choices. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Now, unfortunately, the church is often erred on the other side and heaping even more guilt upon us. The religious assumption is the worse you feel about yourself, the more righteous you are. Well, that's also a lie from the pit of hell. When you think of guilt, you may recall Martin Luther flogging himself over the sins that he committed before he understood the grace of the gospel. Monks could easily find themselves trapped in these unhealthy kinds of introspection. St. Francis of Assisi uh, began the order of Franciscan monks. Those who joined the Franciscan order were required to take vows of personal purity. The story is told of one young monk who encountered temptation in the form of a beautiful young woman. He succumbed to the temptation. Immediately, he was racked with guilt and he crawled into a doorway on the street and rolled into the fetal position, uh, covering his head with his hands and his arms and shielding his face. And he said over and over again, God, forgive me a sinner. God, forgive me a sinner. God, forgive me a sinner. Well, Francis went and searched for him and when he found him, he was still repeating this prayer. And after watching him for a moment, he came over and tapped him on the shoulder and he said, my son, I think he heard you the first time. What do you despise? Do you despise yourself? Do you despise God's discipline? Do you despise what God despises? Yes, God hates sin. He wants you to learn to hate sin as well. The only way you can do that is to get to know Him. 
Sin can only be understood in the light of His holiness. When Isaiah caught the vision of the Lord high and lifted up, he responds in Isaiah 6, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah rightly despised his sin that made his lips unclean. Thankfully, the Lord does not leave us in our sin. Out of love, He brings us His discipline to guide us. And so the second question is, how do you view God's discipline? Verse 12 says, for the Lord reproves him whom He loves. Now the Lord's reproof is a correction. Now we know that naturally we are bent towards error, towards sin, towards foolishness. So the need for correction shouldn't be uh, you know, all that of a shock to us. It's relatively obvious. But how is the Lord's discipline and correction an expression of His love? We don't always get that very quickly. So a contrasting example sometimes can be helpful. In Romans chapter 1, the sinful nature of man is displayed uh, as is the Lord's response. And so we read in Romans 1 verse 22, "...claiming to be wise, they became fools." and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. And therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Have you ever wanted God to just leave you alone? Well, leaving you alone is a type of His judgment. Verse 24 says, God gave them up to the destructiveness of their own rebellion. He gave them what they wanted, and that was judgment. Leaving you alone is not an expression of God's love for you. It's an expression of of His judgment. God loves His children too much to just leave us to our own destructive ways. He would spare you the pain and the consequences of your own rebellion. Dr. O. Palmer Robertson, one of my professors, said, the Christian gets caught cheating on his taxes because the Lord loves you. The Lord is the best example of parenting. He is the only perfect parent. If you're familiar with Ted Tripp's book, Shepherding a Child Heart, Ted says that 90% of parenting should be formative instruction with only 10% corrective discipline. I wonder if you've ever thought about the relationship between the word disciple and the word discipline. You see, the Lord first establishes the standard of Uh, His standard through discipleship, that's the formative instruction, and then He corrects us back to that standard in discipline. Our Heavenly Father gives us in the Scriptures about 90% formative instruction and only about 10% corrective discipline. He also never disciplines us out of unrighteous 
anger. Our Heavenly Father's discipline is out of love. It's for the purpose of saving us from our own destruction. Proverbs 5 verse 22 says, The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. This is why we also read in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 12, If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. Do you trust your heavenly Father to be a better father than your earthly dad? Now, as parents, most of us are guilty of punitive or vengeful discipline, as I was saying before, and so others of us swing the pendulum the other way, and we're guilty of permissive parenting. Letting your children make up their own minds about their faith without even giving them clear and consistent instruction. It's one of the most unloving things we could possibly do. Your children look to you to know what is right, what should they believe, where should they go. If you want to leave it up to the world to teach them, the world will absolutely take you up on that offer and teach your kids exactly what they want you to know. But God gives us parents primarily the responsibility for spiritual formation. We need to imitate by giving, imitate the Lord by giving our children 90% formative instruction with only 10% corrective, not punitive, but corrective discipline. If a child has no idea what standard he broke, he only hears you wanting your way above his way. There's a story of a little child who was uh, riding his bike, and uh, his dad said, okay, you know, he's just, just learning to ride. He just started riding. He says, okay, you can go down uh, to the corner, but don't turn the corner. Just go down to the corner and come back, and you can come back. So the little kid gets on his bike, and he rides down. He turns the corner. He goes down. He comes back. His father says, I told you not to go around the corner. He says, now, go do it again, but don't go around the corner. Just go down and then come right back. So the child goes down, goes around the corner again, and comes back. His father's like, I told you not to do that. The son looks up at his dad, and he says, Dad, with tears in his eyes, what's a corner? If you don't know what the standard is, if it doesn't make sense to you, if you don't know what you're supposed to do, then being disciplined to a standard you don't even know exists just shows that I want my way instead of your way. And the Lord would have us replace that with formative instruction, giving them biblical definition so that they know this is what God requires. And they have to recognize that it's not about my way or your way. I'm accountable as a parent. I'm accountable as a pastor to the same Lord that you're accountable to. And our children then know their place. They know our place. And they know God's place at the center of our home. Well, we learned lastly that God's place should also be at the center of our delight. And the last question is, what do you delight in? Well, verse 12 says, For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son, in whom he delights. 
Now, this example assumes that the father delights in his son. I remember a day, I remember each day that my three boys were born. I mean, it was very, very clear in my mind. And they came out, and I looked at them, and I had this incredible delight, this incredible love for them, and we just met. It was amazing. God just gives that love to parents that they might rejoice in whom God has given as a wonderful gift. And so when we think about the fact that we can have that kind of love for our children, how much greater is the perfect delight of our own Heavenly Father? And then the screams at 2 a.m. began. I didn't love that. But we did what we had to do because we loved our children and we wanted to give them what was best as our Father gives what's best to us. But if we have that kind of delight, how much greater is God's delight in us? And so my question for you is, do you view the Lord as delighting in you? Most of us have a hard time with that. Now, if you're sitting there saying, what's not to love? Well, you don't really get it either. The fact that God delights in us is only possible because Christ took our sin upon Himself, paid it in full, gave us His perfect life, and makes us justified in God's sight. We are united to Christ. And so when God looks at us, He sees Christ, not us. You remember what happened at Jesus' baptism? It says in Mark chapter 1, verse 10, And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Well pleased also means to delight in. So because you are in Christ, your heavenly Father can say the very same thing to you. You are my beloved child in whom I greatly delight. Is that how you view your heavenly Father? One of the reasons we have trouble believing that the Lord actually delights in us is because our earthly fathers did not necessarily delight in us. Some of you grew up with distant dads. They did their duty, but they didn't know your heart and you didn't know theirs. The things that mattered most to you didn't matter to them at all. Your capacity to know your father's delight might be underdeveloped. Others of you did not even know your earthly father. Either he left or he died when you were young. You never had the joy of working on a project together or seeing His face when you performed or celebrating with you when you won your game. Again, this may be compromising your capacity to know your Heavenly Father's delight. Sadly, some of you had abusive fathers. All He cared about was Himself. No matter how hard you tried, you could not please Him and He harmed you for a variety of unjust reasons. Worse than having an underdeveloped capacity for delight, you had a warping experience through abuse. But guess what? You could have had the best dad the world has ever seen, and he still 
falls short. So no matter what your experience was with your earthly father, our heavenly father's delight can fill the void. It shines through the darkness of abuse and it sets you free from a false identity. Your new identity is in Christ. And He delights in you. Your value is what was paid for you. The very life of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead. The problem comes is the fact that we don't delight in Christ above all things. When we pursue comfort or control or significance in things of this world, then our delight is ungodly. You see, the Lord would spare us from despising what He gave us for our good and delighting in what can harm us. His discipline is supposed to get our attention, and it does in a variety of ways, to cause us to reevaluate our priorities. Perhaps you are simply reaping what you've sown. It says in Hosea chapter 10, verse 12, Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, for it is the time to seek, for it is the time to seek the Lord, that He may come and rain righteousness upon you. You have plowed iniquity. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. Therefore the tumult of war shall arise among your people and all your fortresses shall be destroyed. Where is your heart this evening? Have you been delighting in something more than you delight in your heavenly Father? Maybe food, drink, vacations, money, Freedom, rest, control, comfort, attention. These can either be tools of His delight to honor God's name, or they can be chains of bondage that drag you down. Or have you despised the things the Lord gave you for your good, for your delight? Maybe you've neglected regular prayer and Bible study. Maybe coming to church is just an empty ritual that we've done since we were kids. Maybe you've despised serving others because you just want someone to serve you for once. Only the Lord can work on our hearts and teach us to hate what He hates and to delight in what He delights in. You know, it's amazing to me. How many movies use the relationship of a father and a child as the core of the drama? I mean, just every movie you watch, just figure out how often that's like the central piece of it. And it's not wrong, it's just that they're borrowing from his story. We read the last two verses of the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, and it says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Yeah, that's how the Old Testament ends. Like two-thirds of the Bible, like boom, there's the conclusion, and then Jesus. 
Elijah couldn't do it. John the Baptist could only prepare for it. Only Christ could turn our Heavenly Father's heart to His children by redeeming us. He alone gives us the faith of our forefathers. And the fruit of that begins with us taking delight, entering our children's world and delighting in what they delight in. Why? So that we can guide them to delight in what lasts forever by delighting in our own Heavenly Father. The new covenant reality is that our hearts, when they're turned toward His children among all nations, that they will see that heart of love and they will say, God is truly among you. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for Your love for us. Lord, it's so easy for us to despise Your discipline because very often it does hurt. But we thank You for not giving us over to it. We thank You for not leaving us where we were, kicking in a puddle. But You came. You showed up. You were incarnate in the flesh. You entered our world that we might know You, that we might be redeemed. Please help us be incarnate, entering our children's world, entering the world of our neighbors who do not know You, showing them Your love, that they may know You now and forevermore. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.